Happy New Year, Wild Wanderers. Hopefully 2024 brings you lots of time to go outside and get dirty, and you know I mean that in the best way possible. Now to end 2023, I told you about some newly discovered species of animals, and some that were thought to be extinct but rediscovered. One of these unextincted animals was a species of golden mole, and that got me thinking about the differences and often the confusion between moles and voles and a similar small animal, shrews. So that's how we're going to launch the new year, by taking a look at moles and voles and shrews. Oh my. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. When I talked about the rediscovered De Winton's Golden Mole in the last episode, there was one fact that I missed. It turns out that golden moles aren't actually moles. Now, there's many groups of burrowing animals that have similar characteristics thanks to convergent evolution, which I think I've mentioned before, but just to review, convergent evolution is when similar traits evolve in unrelated species because of similar environmental pressures. For example, fish and marine mammals like dolphins have a similar streamlined shape and fins because they both evolved to live in water. But there are two species that are commonly thought of and called moles, even though they're completely unrelated to both true moles and each other. South Africa's golden moles are one of these. Golden moles are actually more closely related to elephants, manatees, and aardvarks than they are to true moles. The other is the marsupial mole found in Australia. Marsupial moles, which you might have guessed from their name, are non-placental mammals. This means they're more closely related to other Australian marsupials like kangaroos and koalas and even to the North American possums than they are to other placental mammals, including true moles. So let's talk about true moles. Various species of mole are found throughout North America, Europe, and Asia. They're small mammals, four to six inches long on average, that you'll rarely, if ever, see because they're adapted to living a subterranean lifestyle. One of these adaptations is the ability to tolerate environments with lower oxygen and higher carbon dioxide levels. Moles can tolerate higher levels of carbon dioxide than other mammals thanks to a special form of hemoglobin in their blood. In addition, moles use oxygen more effectively by reusing the air that they exhale. Moles have cylindrical-shaped bodies, reduced hind limbs, small eyes and ears, you know, there's not much to see underground, and powerful front limbs with large paws adapted for digging. In fact, moles have polydactyl front paws, which means they have an extra digit on each one. In the mole's case, it's an extra thumb. This extra thumb is called a prepollux, and while the other digits have multiple joints just like your fingers do, the prepollux is made of a single sickle-shaped bone. Even the mole's fur is adapted to living underground. Mole's pelts are generally dark gray or brown. Taupe, which happens to be the French word for mole, and has a velvety texture, very different from that of surface animals. Surface-dwelling animals tend to have longer fur with a natural tendency for the fur to lie in a particular direction. Think about petting a cat or a dog. You pet from the head towards the tail, right? Going the other direction doesn't work very well. 
But to facilitate their burrowing lifestyle, the fur of moles is short and very dense, and the hairs don't lie in any particular direction. This makes it easy for moles to move backwards underground without their fur getting brushed the wrong way. On something of a side note, despite their small size, wherever moles were hunted as pests, particularly in the United Kingdom, their fur made them popular for a variety of clothing. And leather made from moles is extremely soft and supple, hence the name moleskin for a type of soft but tough woven cotton fabric. From at least as early as the 18th century, every parish in England employed a mole catcher who supplemented his income by selling mole pelts. Given their small size, a mole skin coat or pair of trousers might require 500 pelts or more. Now in the early 1900s, Queen Alexandra, wife of the UK's King Edward VII, ordered a mole fur wrap. Now, whether she intended to start a fashion trend or not is a matter of debate. But Queen Alexandra was already a fashion trendsetter. I mean, seriously, the woman walked with a limp as a result of having rheumatic fever, and some women of the time wore shoes with two different sized heels to emulate the way she walked. Anyways, the end result was a demand for mole fur that turned a pest problem in Scotland into a lucrative industry. From 1900 to 1913, the average annual supply of European and Asian moleskins was estimated to be around 1 million, and it increased after that. At the peak of moleskins' popularity, the U.S. was importing over 4 million pelts a year from the U.K. Now, moles are generally solitary, coming together only for mating. Territories may overlap, but they generally avoid each other, and males are known to fight fiercely if they meet. During the mating season, males, called boars, search for females, called sows, by letting out high-pitched squeals while tunneling through foreign areas. So, it's basically the mole equivalent of wandering through strange neighborhoods screaming, and the women go wild, I guess? Gestation is four to six weeks, and sows give birth to litters of two to five pups. When they're about five weeks old, the pups leave the nest to find territories of their own. The average lifespan of a mole in the wild is about five years. Now, moles are often considered pests because they burrow and raise molehills. These mounds can kill the parts of lawns where they appear, and burrows can potentially undermine plant roots, indirectly causing damage. But moles don't actually eat plant roots. Arguments for moles as agricultural pests include dirt from molehills getting into livestock feed and making it unpalatable, reduced pasture size and yields from molehills exposing fresh soil, exposure of rocks that could damage farm machinery, damage to drainage systems, and the potential for invasive weeds to take root or other species like weasels and voles to use mole tunnels to gain access to enclosed areas. But for the most part, these problems are minor, and people tend to, well, make mountains out of molehills. Moles also have a positive impact on soils and gardens. Their tunnels and burrows reduce soil compaction and help fertilize and aerate the soil, and they feed on slugs and other invertebrates that may, in fact, directly damage plants. Not to mention that they're a food source for other animals, like raptors, foxes, weasels, skunks, and even large fish. Personally, I'd rather have moles than a perfect lawn anyways. 
Moles are omnivores, but their diet consists primarily of earthworms, slugs, insect larvae, and other small invertebrates found in the soil. Mole tunnels actually act as worm traps. When a worm falls into the tunnel, the mole senses it and runs quickly to where it is, but they may or may not eat it right away. Their saliva contains a toxin that can paralyze earthworms, so moles often store their still-living prey to eat later. They actually construct a storage area just for this purpose. Researchers have discovered mole caches containing over a thousand worms. Before eating worms, moles pull them through their squeezed paws to force the dirt out of the worm's gut. But probably the most incredible and interesting thing about moles are sensory structures called Elmer's organs. And the most impressive Elmer's organs are those of North America's star-nosed mole, a hamster-sized mole that lives in wet, lowland areas of the northeastern United States and southeastern Canada. Now, like I said, Elmer's organs are a sensory organ, and the star-nosed mole's snout has about 25,000 of these organs. It's kind of like having a hand on the end of your nose, except that it's about six times more sensitive than a human hand, and it can't actually grab things. The nose of a star-nosed mole is made up of 22 fleshy tendrils, 11 on each side, that ring the nostrils and are in constant motion as the mole explores its environment. The whole thing is only about a centimeter across, giving it a diameter about the size of your fingertip, but it's still nine times larger than the nose of other mole species. It's been described as a tactile eye. The peripheral rays, number 1 through 10 on each side, are less sensitive and study the surroundings, while the 11th pair explores items of interest in more detail. The star-nosed mole is also a good swimmer and can forage along the bottom of lakes and streams. In fact, while it digs surface tunnels like other moles, the tunnels of star-nosed moles often have an underwater exit. It can even smell underwater, something that used to be thought impossible for a mammal since it requires, for lack of a better description, sniffing in air to get the smells into the nose. Now, the Elmer's organ is not a chemical receptor like the nose, but it does help the star-nosed mole blow 8 to 12 small air bubbles per second onto objects, which can then be drawn into the nostrils. Before this discovery about the star-nosed mole, scientists didn't think mammals could smell underwater at all, much less by blowing bubbles. Pretty impressive. But wait, it gets better. The star-nosed mole's Elmer's organs are not only incredibly sensitive, but it also has an incredible reaction speed. In only 8 milliseconds, it can determine whether something is edible, and the average time it takes to identify and consume a food item is 227 milliseconds. This is one of the fastest responses to a stimulus in the animal kingdom, and why the star-nosed mole has been recognized in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's fastest eating mammal. The star-nosed mole can detect, catch, and eat food faster than your eye can follow. So if that's a mole, what's a vole? Because their names are so similar, people often confuse moles and voles. In North America, they're even sometimes called meadow mice or field mice because they look and behave very similar to things like mice and rats, and also shrews, which I'll talk more about in a minute. 
Voles are small rodents related to lemmings and hamsters, but compared to a hamster, they have a stouter body, longer tail, more rounded head, and smaller eyes and ears. There's about 155 different species of vole, and depending on the species, they grow to between 3 and 9 inches long. Now, unlike moles, voles primarily eat small plants, although they will scavenge carrion if it's available. They'll eat any fruit or nut, but they target plants more than most animals their size, and they'll even girdle small trees and shrubs. Girdling is when the bark is removed or damaged in a ring around the trunk or branch, which can prevent the plant from being able to transport nutrients and can be fatal over time. Voles also target plant roots and bulbs, burrowing under plants to eat the roots, again killing the plant. They're excellent burrowers, which can hide their presence until they've killed a significant number of plants. But that said, like other burrowing rodents, they also play beneficial roles, including dispersing nutrients through the upper soil layers and as a food source for many predators. In fact, while larger species of vole can live as long as two or three years, the average lifespan for smaller species is just three to six months, and they rarely make it past a year. In fact, it's estimated that 88% of voles die in the first month. So if voles had a motto, it would be live fast. Vole pups reach sexual maturity in just one month. Now, if they live long enough, females could potentially have 5 to 10 litters in a year, up to 100 pups. But given that 3 to 6 month average lifespan, 2 litters is the norm. Still, vole populations can grow exponentially and become very large in a very short period of time. Voles tend to live in colonies. Some species of vole are monogamous, and the male participates in the raising of young, while others are polygamous, males mating with several females, and the males don't help raise the young. Environmental conditions play a large part in dictating which system is active in any given population. When resources are evenly dispersed and population density is low, monogamy is more likely. Monogamy is also more likely when the numbers of males and females are roughly equal. Interestingly, voles have been shown to comfort each other and to display empathy. Researchers studying vole behavior in 2016 found that voles spent more time grooming a vole that had been mistreated. In addition, voles that were not mistreated had similar levels of stress hormones to the mistreated voles, suggesting that they were able to empathize with the mistreated vole. Further strengthening this conclusion was the fact that when the vole's receptors for oxytocin, a hormone involved in empathy, were blocked, the consoling behavior stopped. Also interesting is something called the vole clock. The vole clock is a method of dating archaeological strata using vole teeth. Investigations across Europe have resulted in a detailed framework of how, when, and where different species of voles evolved and went extinct over the last million years. By identifying a specific species of vole from teeth uncovered in an archaeological dig, scientists can accurately date their finds. At some sites, the vole clock is considered the most accurate method of dating and also provides information on the climate and local environment at the time. Okay, so that's moles and voles, so what the heck's a shrew? And can they really be tamed? 
Shrews look kind of like voles. They're a small animal. The biggest grow to just six inches long, and the smallest, at less than an inch and a half long and weighing less than a penny, is the smallest known living terrestrial mammal. Shrews look like a mouse with a long nose, but while they may look like rodents, they're not. Shrews have sharp needle-like teeth. Rodents have flat incisors for gnawing. Shrews are actually more closely related to moles and hedgehogs, and just like there are moles in name only, there are also true, shrew, true shrews. Say that ten times fast. And some species that have shrew in their name because of their appearance, but aren't actually shrews, like tree shrews, otter shrews, elephant shrews, and marsupial shrews. There's also a shrew mole, which is a mole that looks like a shrew and actually represents an intermediate form between moles and their shrew ancestors. There's nearly 400 species of shrew, and they're distributed almost worldwide among the tropical and temperate regions. Only New Guinea, Australia, and New Zealand don't have a native shrew species. Shrews are the fourth most species-diverse family of mammals and probably have the largest total population of any mammal. It's estimated that there are 100 billion shrews in the world, which works out to an average of at least a few shrews for every two and a half acres of forest. Generally speaking, shrews are terrestrial animals that forage for seeds, insects, nuts, worms, and other foods in leaf litter and dense vegetation. But there are species that specialize in climbing trees, living underground, living under snow, and even hunting in water. Shrews have small eyes and generally poor vision, but they make up for it with an excellent sense of smell and hearing. Shrews have an incredibly high metabolic rate, so they need to eat almost constantly. They can consume up to two times their body weight every day. This creates a bit of a problem for them because unlike rodents whose teeth grow throughout their lifetime, shrews only have one set of teeth and they can wear down over time. Interestingly, shrew species with the highest metabolisms tend to have iron in their tooth enamel, just like rodents, which reinforces the enamel to reduce wear and tints the teeth a pinkish color. Species with lower metabolisms, which eat less and subsequently put less wear on their teeth, don't have this adaptation. Shrews are fiercely territorial, driving off rivals and coming together only to mate. In tropical regions, they breed year-round, but in temperate zones, they stop in the winter. With a gestation period of two to four weeks, female shrews can have up to 10 litters a year and often become pregnant within days of giving birth weaning one litter as the next litter is born. Lifespan in the wild is 12 to 15 months. Now, shrews are unusual in a couple of ways. First of all, some species use echolocation. Aside from bats, the only other terrestrial mammals that use echolocation are two groups of shrews and two other groups of animals that resemble shrews thanks to, again, convergent evolution. But unlike bats, shrews don't use echolocation to find prey just for investigating their immediate surroundings. The second thing that makes shrews unusual is that some species are venomous. This venom is not injected by fangs, but it's directed into a wound by grooves in the teeth. Shrew venom is not medically significant to humans, but the venom glands of the American short-tailed shrew contain enough venom to kill 200 mice. Compounds found in shrew venom are being investigated as a possible treatment for high blood pressure, 
migraines, ovarian cancer, and even some neuromuscular diseases. And for the record, regardless of what Shakespeare said, according to all the information I found, shrews cannot in fact be tamed. And with that, we'll wrap up this first episode of 2024. Once again, I want to wish you a happy new year and say thank you for listening. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And tell your friends and family to check out the podcast. Let's see how many people we can get to listen this year. Make a resolution to support the podcast by going to our Patreon page and becoming a patron. Subscriptions start at the low price of just $5 a month, and after three months, you get some cool merchandise. I'm also looking at some other benefits for patrons in the new year. You can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and an easy way to contact me if you have a question or a comment or a suggestion for future episodes. And of course, we have merch. Check out our merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. Lots of options there. Go there and take a look. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.